The following talk was given at the Sati Center for Buddhist Studies in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at sati.org. Um, and it's a delight to, to be here and have a chance to, to speak with all of you. So um, I thought I would kind of go and maybe go in little segments and kind of try to talk through the main topics of the book. Obviously, we can't cover quite everything. But I really want to hear also any questions or comments that you have along the way. So there might be some natural uh, break points for that. I certainly don't want to talk the whole time. I hope we'll have something a little bit more engaging than that. Um, so this, this book uh, here, some of you probably already have it, but this is what it looks like. There's also an ebook version if you prefer not to um, use the trees. Um, I would say that it emerged from a longtime interest in, for lack of a better way of saying it, how lay people can live something that approaches a monastic lifestyle. And obviously there are major differences and you know there isn't an exact parallel there. And I don't wanna to talk too much about that distinction or try to set up uh, some kinds of comparison and contrast, but it was more of an internal feeling of being drawn to a simple lifestyle, renunciate lifestyle, one that is conditions in life that support optimally being able to practice the Dharma and walk the path and let go of what needs to be let go of in order for freedom. And you know how we each accomplish that, I think, is a very individual thing. But uh, I saw people doing it as monastics and others doing it as lay people. And so that's an abiding interest of mine is how we can really deepen the Dharma, especially in Western culture here, where it's not as established as something uh, that's just folded into, um, let's say, the national understanding. So um, the book luckily doesn't try to accomplish all of that in one shot, but it really is more of a it began as um, kind of a deep dive uh, in the research area of what does this term nekama really mean? And that word N-E-K-K-H-A-M-M-A, nekama, is the word that's usually translated as renunciation. We'll talk about that translation choice uh, in a moment. But I wanted to understand more about what this idea means. You know, what is it? What was the Buddha saying when he used that terms, which he does fairly frequently in his teachings? So I did very literally. I did a search on the Pali version of the Pali Canon and read all the suttas that explicitly use that term. I read them in English, of course, but after I searched the the Pali to make sure I got them all. And Dimitri, you already have your hand up. Um, or was that an accident? Okay, <laughs> great. Um, so I read all the suttas that explicitly use this term and uh, kind of let them steep in my mind and found that they had some sequence to them. And so the first part of the book is my um, kind of sequencing of all these uh, suttas that include the, explicitly the word nekama. Of course, there are many other suttas that have that concept, that idea, that flavor to them, but I was just looking for the ones that actually use that word. It's interesting to know that the terms, the other Dharma terms that are most closely connected with this term nekama are uh, things like wisdom, happiness, faith, and freedom. So maybe not what we expect from the English term renunciation. So just a couple of quotes that stood out for me that give this flavor from the Anguttara Nikaya. There are these two kinds of happiness. What two? Sensual happiness and the happiness of renunciation. Of these two kinds of happiness, the happiness of renunciation is the foremost. So it states right up front, this is a better kind of happiness. And then from the Dhammapada, always delightful, even the gods envy the awakened ones, the mindful ones, the wise ones who are intent on meditation and delight in the peace of renunciation. So again, we have a very high you know, status in sense to this word. So this word renunciation in English, does this quite capture the flavor of how it's held up in the suttas? Probably not, um, at least not the idea 
of the word renunciation. If we just say that, there are many ties to austerity, to other religious ideas that may, um, in our mind, create a sense of a little bit drawing back or uh, not not quite understanding what the term is referring to. At least not, it doesn't seem like it would point toward wisdom, happiness, faith, etc. And yet, um, I haven't found a better single word that you could translate Nikama as because it fits pretty well um, the actual experience. The actual experience of Nikama is to release, to let go, in a sense. And there are many other words that also mean letting go, but this is one form of letting go. And in Buddhism and practice, as we understand, that is always accompanied by lightness, by ease, by some form of peace. And often we're letting go of things that we didn't want to let go of, the ignorance and clinging didn't want to let go of them. And so there's resistance to that. And then when it finally releases, ah, yes, we see that the mind has managed to renounce something that it thought it needed. So in the end, I like the word well enough. There isn't a better single word. And so I've decided to embrace it, and I just put it in the title of my book. I put in all in all the titles of the courses that I teach about this. I just unabashedly use this term renunciation to see that to make sure that people who show up are okay with it. It seems to work out well enough. After all, you're all here, right? So um, everybody here, I think, is okay with the word renunciation, unless you were coming to object to it. And we'll get to that later, I guess, in the Q and A. But um, so if we get over the idea of renunciation and focus more on the experience of it, which I'll get to later, um, then I think it's pretty good. So in contrast, you know, this other kind of happiness, sensual happiness in the text, that is likened to all kinds of terrible things. It's likened to a dog gnawing on a meatless bone, not getting any satisfaction from it. Sensual pleasure is likened to going against the wind with a torch to parading around with borrowed goods that don't belong to us, and then the owner sees us and takes them back. That's an embarrassing experience. Um, sensual pleasure is also likened to living in a dream world, so very delusional. So each of these captures some of the flavor of the problems, um, the disadvantages associated with that real but lower kind of pleasure that we can have. So... Once we see this setup between renunciation and sensual happiness, the mind wavers a little bit, right? Because especially as lay people where we haven't given up as much, um, there's a sense of well, why, what's wrong with you know these things that I enjoy. And um, there's some interesting suttas about that too. So the Buddha says, for example, about himself that even he found this non-intuitive at the beginning. And um, he has a, talks about a sutta where he said he was in a sutta that he was attached to youth, to life, and to health, and that he didn't see that renunciation would be peaceful because of his, you know, enjoyment of these uh, aspects of life. And then I want to read another quote that's even more um, direct. So this is the Buddha talking about the time before his awakening. And he says, even I myself, before my awakening, when I was still an unawakened bodhisattva, thought, renunciation is good, seclusion is good. But my heart did not leap up at renunciation, didn't grow confident, steadfast, or released, seeing it as peace. The thought occurred to me, why is it that my heart does not leap up at renunciation, doesn't grow confident, steadfast, or released, seeing it as peace? Then it occurred to me, I have not seen the drawback of sensual pleasures. I have not cultivated that insight. I have not understood the benefit of renunciation. I have not familiarized myself with it. So even the Buddha, the Buddha-to-be, uh, had to go through an active process of understanding what is the drawback of this more common type of pleasure and what is the real benefit of the pleasure of letting go. And then, you know, that's the path that we walk. But I think if the Buddha had to do that, probably we're going to have to do that too. So it's, you know, it's okay that we have those questions like, what is wrong with this? Or is this wrong? Or 
what's so great about letting go, etc. So we, this is an exploration to be done in our experience. So this word, um, nekama, that's held up as a deeper form of peace, a better form of happiness, where does it appear most commonly in the suttas? And probably the clearest place that it can be pointed to is in the second step of the Eightfold Path. It's one of the three wise intentions, is nikama, the intention of letting go or renunciation, along with non-harming and non-cruelty, or non-ill will and non-cruelty. So that's pretty high up. You know, it's um, placed alongside the impulse to care, to be kind, to be compassionate, and then to renounce. <laughs> so another exploration for us. But then if you look in other suttas, you see that it's not only intention, but it's also thought, avitaka, and perception, sanya. All of those are linked to renunciation being a skillful form of those things. So... I thought, well, what is, what could we, could we think of some way to encompass this sense that the mind is inclining toward letting go? And then I decided to call it the, uh, the attitude of renunciation. Um, that's not a poly word, but, you know, the idea that we can cultivate thoughts, intentions, and perceptions of being able to release things. That would be like walking through the world with this attitude of renunciation. How can I let go here? In the same way that we might walk through with an attitude of metta or compassion. How can I help here? How can I be kind here? How can I serve here? How could I let go here? And that's a very radically different way of being in the world than most people. So, and it's very helpful, you know, to have a sense, like if you get into a little discussion with somebody where you think you're right and you think they're wrong you could remember at the last moment oh right i have this attitude of letting go maybe this would be a moment to let go of my attachment to being right something like that so it comes up in little ways or you know our preferences letting go of those if it's appropriate uh, it really helps smooth things out so the first part of the book is just this exploration of what does nekama, how does it appear in the suttas? Um, I'll have a bit more, to say, maybe a bit more to say about that later. But I want to move on to the second section of the book. There are three. Um, and I set them up kind of in the introduction. I set them up as the three different kinds of wisdom, like the wisdom of hearing, uh, the wisdom of contemplation, thinking about things, reflecting, and then the wisdom of experience. So we start with just, you know, what do the teachings say about this, taking in that conceptual understanding. And then we can reflect on it a bit, like how does this apply um, in the path, in our life, something like that. How might it be relevant? So I looked very carefully. If we're, we're going to look at letting go, we also have to look at desire. And uh, so renunciation, desire, and letting go, how do those all fit together? Like how can we put this idea of nikama, of renunciation, into a, a bigger context uh, in the path, in the teachings, because uh, the Buddha has a lot to say about desire and letting go. That's a big deal for humans. Um, and so I can't talk about the whole topic of desire and letting go, uh, but I can talk about it in the context of how can we understand this idea of nikama, of renunciation, a little bit better. So... Um, uh, I introduce a little paradigm in that section where um, desire is a word in English that is, I think, a little too vague and broad. Um, desire is very, it applies in a lot of different cases. And what we want is to understand the range or the domain or the different types of desire that we can have so that we can understand which ones are maybe helpful, if there are any, there are some, and which ones are, are harmful, are part of tanha, are part of clinging and grasping. So um, this is not a canonical list, but I came up with five different kinds of desire, broadly speaking, and um, I don't put them quite on a linear spectrum. Uh, hopefully that may be more of a space that they fill, and yet the idea of wholesome and unwholesome does, does apply. So I'll just mention them briefly. Um, 
on one end, perhaps, or one region, we do have desires that are so obviously harmful. And this would be the realm of tanha, of, of thirst, of grasping, clinging. So, you know, um, addiction, for example, uh, is what the way that desire can get in, can get us in trouble. Or we know what it feels like to have lust for power, for sex, for food, you know, that can really go overboard to the point of affecting our life, affecting our relationships, harming us, harming others. So that would be kind of one category of desires that we have. Um, and we're all subject, you know, if we're not awakened, we're subject to those, even if they're not active in us right now. So, um, and then another, you know, another kind, I'm not sure I would where to place it in the space, but another kind of desire uh, is just basic desires associated with having a body, the literal hunger and thirst. They come, they, they come as feelings of wanted, wanting to eat, wanting to drink. We have to go to the bathroom. You know, these basic bodily things, uh, I'm cold, I need to get a sweater, I'm hot, I need to get out of the sun. So having a body brings in senses of desire. Uh, you don't get over those when you wake up. You know, that they may ex be experienced somewhat differently, but there are still these bodily needs. So we could place that, I think, in, the, in some, some kind of desire realm. There are differences among beings about how much dukkha there is associated with the desires of the body. And um, the, the less we've walked the path, the more dukkha potentially comes from that kind of natural desires that we have. And then we have all the desires. The third kind is all the desires that are related to living a human life, like beyond basic bodily desires. So, you know, the desire for a community, maybe for a family, for a job, for living in a suitable place, for having access to food that we like, you know, these kinds of things. This is the realm that uh, occupies a huge amount of our energy and attention. Um, if we didn't do those things, we wouldn't hardly be living a human life. So this is, at least for lay people, this is a big area of choice and push and pull and wanting and struggle. And uh, the Buddha directed a lot of his teaching there also, because these are desires that we defend as absolutely necessary and yet the Buddha said, question that, you know, question how firmly we need all of those things and how much cost they also come with. So that's a big area of his teaching, especially for lay people. And then, so a lot of people live in that realm. And then we can start to move into desires that might serve us in some way. What about the desire to meditate, the desire to learn the teachings, uh, the desire to improve our ethics in the world, to improve our communication skills, um, to develop concentration, all sorts of desires that, you know, we would call them still wanting in a sense, aspirations, inclinations um, that do actually serve us. You know, if we act on those, they have a good result. If we don't act on them, we don't get that good result. So this is a question where a lot of lay people come with questions to teachers and they say, well, desire is supposed to be the cause of suffering. I heard that in the second noble truth. Well, what about the fact that I want to meditate? And the teacher says, no, it's okay. There's different kinds of desire. You can still have um, these wishes, these aspirations for yourself. And the Buddha knew that we, you know, the human heart is full of desire and wanting. And he used that on the path to kind of incline us toward the skillful desires, if we could call them that. And then I place the, the wish to awaken in a separate category from the wish for these other skillful things because it is so powerful and so important. And when it comes, um, it often has a, a different feeling than just the skillful desires of the other type. So... Um, I think it's helpful sometimes to uh, look more carefully at this sense of, of desire. But as we start practicing and refining our understanding of which realm of desire we're in and what they each feel like, we can start to realize that uh, letting go is actually what moves one along the path. And so, you know, to go from the worldly desires of having a job, having a family, getting a good enough house, etc., to 
you know, actually, I'd like to improve my ethics. I'd like to learn to meditate. Um, that involves a certain letting go. We have to release some of our fascination with those more worldly desires to have the more elevated or refined types of desires. And so it, as we start to practice, as something in us is pulling along the path, maybe we don't even recognize what it is for a while, we start to realize that it's, it is the act of letting go that refines the mind. So we start to see an interesting trade-off, right, between I, I'm aspiring towards something, but to get there, I have to let go of something that is less refined. And there are teachings that and when, once you see that connection, there are a lot of teachings that, where the Buddha actually says that. Like in the Dhammapada, he says, um, you know, a wise person will let go of a lesser happiness to attain a greater one. So he doesn't say, you know, we're only letting go of terrible, painful things like tanha. We're letting go of lesser forms of happiness in order to uh, develop these more refined forms. And so then we can start to see, oh, okay, we have then also a, a, a whole bunch of types of letting go. Uh, and renunciation is one type. And then there are also uh, different types of letting go. There are deliberate releases of things where we turn away or provide a counteraction to them in some way, like metta for ill will. And then eventually we start to feel that there's almost a non-volitional kind of letting go that emerges. What we what we do is we use effort to create certain conditions in the mind or in our life. And then we wait, we keep creating them, and something comes in and releases. The Fasudi Maka will say it's wisdom that does that job. But you know, there's something that isn't personal effort that isn't me doing it. Uh, and that gets very interesting in practice. And we see that renunciation, which is maybe a little more on the volitional side, kind of sets up a resonance with these other forms of letting go. Like we gain some confidence through being willing to release things that we can. And then uh, the heart takes over or the the wishes, the aspirations take over and help us to release things that we didn't know how to release, but we do the practice and they get released. So I would say that renunciation resonates with these deeper forms of letting go. And so that's why I say in the introduction that it's kind of a broad underpinning for the whole path is that we gain this attitude of letting go and then we let it build momentum on its own. So the second part of the book, does a, a little more drawn out explanation of how that all works. It's an interpretation of what desire, renunciation, and letting go can do and to create a path from where we are to um, to release in, into awakening. It, so it provides kind of a contemplation on this on the topic, second form of wisdom. So maybe, okay, well, good. So let me go on then to. Um, how nekama, this word that we're translating as renunciation, plays out in practice experientially. It's very nice to read about it and talk about it and think about it, but that's a different thing than doing it. <laughs> and so um, I have taught about renunciation for a number of years, as well as made it um, important in my own life. And so I've noticed that when... Um, lay people actually undertake practices of letting go, there are certain kind of domains that it occurs in. There's a foundational set of values that goes with it. And then there are certain domains where it kind of plays out. And the, the foundational qualities that come forth first are a valuing of simplicity and then also having good mindfulness and discernment because renunciation, when we actually go to do it, um, can be done skillfully or unskillfully. You know, it too has that those two sides. So um, remember that it's tied to wisdom, to joy, to faith, to happiness from the first part. Uh, so if we're letting go in a way that is is evocative of aversion and pushing away or denial or you know extreme austerity that would be in the realm of unskillful letting go. That might not be what the Buddha meant by nekama. So I give the example in the book of, you know, impulsively taking half your stuff out to the dumpster and just throwing it there. 
might not be wise renunciation. There might be aversion, there might be agitation, there might not be clear seeing in doing that. Or there might, I mean, you have to be mindful, but um, you know, we need to let go in, in wise ways. So having a value, a sort of va- valuing simplicity as a, a guiding principle can be very helpful in what to let go of. We let go of things that are complicating our life. If we have too much stuff, it's complicated. It's so much nicer not to have as much stuff. If we have too much, this is not only physical, if we have too much mental activity, it's too much, too much thinking, too much rumination, too much speculation. It's so much simpler if we don't have that. And that's also a form of letting go of renunciation. Um, So I used in the book the opening lines of the Metta Sutta as uh, indicative of um, this idea of simplicity and letting go. I'll read the Amaravati translation, which I think many of you know from the chanting that's sometimes done. This is just the beginning part. This is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, unburdened with duties and frugal in their ways, peaceful and calm and wise and skillful, not proud and demanding in nature. Can you feel the simplicity and the ease of that way of being? Wouldn't it be nice to always be straightforward and gentle in speech and not be tied up in trying to convince people of things and playing the game of do they see me correctly and can I look good in this person's eyes? Oh, and unburdened with duties. Now, of course, that could mean that we don't have very many duties, but it could also mean that we have duties and we're not burdened by them. You know, yeah, I have a lot to do, but one thing at a time, I'll get it done. My mind doesn't have to get complicated because of that. And I, I do a little bit of unpacking in the book of how this, this points to simplicity in body, in speech, and in mind. If we just took these opening three stanzas of the Metta Sutta as our guideline for being simple in the world, we could go a very long way, actually, just with those as a teaching. So um, I think I should say a little bit about simplicity in mind, because we have such a mind-oriented culture here. It doesn't mean that you stop having the ability to think about things carefully or to think things through, or to be organized, or to have a a subtle understanding of things. Simplicity of mind means that we've gotten rid of the layer that is not necessary, the part where we spend a lot of time speculating about what other people are thinking and doing and why they're like that, and um, reviewing the uh, details of our calendar and planning how we can have the maximal comfort and pleasure and pleasant experiences in the, ne- in the next day that we're going to be doing. Like just kind of releasing all of that actually enables the mind to have a more refined, somewhat, you know, a deep understanding of the Dharma. We can still think very carefully about things and logically and straightforwardly. Um, we, don't, we don't lose that skill or ability In fact, I think it gets enhanced when we let go of all of the extra thinking that we don't do. So simplicity of mind is really clarity of mind. It opens up clarity of mind. So that's kind of the foundation is that we have a sense of simplicity. We have some mindfulness about the process of letting go, like we're willing to pay attention while we're renouncing so we can feel that things are actually getting more easeful. And we have some discernment about remembering what's going to be skillful and unskillful and which direction is supposed to be moving us. And then once people have that foundation, then how does how does renunciation practice play out? Well, there are kind of three arenas for it. There is the material realm, which is often what we think of first, having less stuff, being content with little. But um, I also say there's a, the mental realm of letting go of complicated storylines in the mind and mental mental habits and patterns that um, add dukkha to our life. And then I this kind of a third one is kind of a special case of the second, but we could also say that um, identity, you know, letting go in the realm of identity is yet a third area because it goes it goes much deeper than 
So um, I wanted to share some. Um, so I so I run courses where people are asked to actually do renunciation practices, and they're told in advance. You know, like the point of the course is between this meeting and the next one, you're going to go do an actual exercise in your life or in the world and then report on it in a group interview and provide some group support. Everybody's doing the same thing. It's a lot of kind of fun. Um, so I want to share a little bit from those. I'm going to share my screen. Okay. So why teach experiential courses on Nikama? That's what I call them. So I just note that here in the West, there are a notable number of practitioners who are highly dedicated lay people. They sit long retreats, they study, they simplify their life. I don't always see Dharma teachings acknowledging and addressing this group of people. Now, some people have just done that naturally, but in, a, in some, some fraction of them, I sense that there's actually a longing for this way of being, but some uncertainty about it. Maybe they don't see uh, models of it. Maybe they don't hear clear teachings on it. So um, I think it's useful to put these courses out there in order to have some explicitness about the possibility of living this way. So um, sample exercises that I've given to people, always framed as learning explorations, never as success or failure. You know, if you did it, you win. And if you didn't do it, then you failed or something. It's not like that. So in the case of the material, um, I ask people to clean out a closet and give away anything not used in two years. There's nothing special or necessary about the two-year time frame. It's just um, concrete. Uh, in the realm of mental patterns, our habits of mind, try giving up complaining for several weeks. Or try looking at uh, when the mind is lost in the story, check if it was rooted in craving, conceit, or views, which are said to be the three roots of Papancha teachings. So we're learning about our mental patterns. And then in the realm of identity, there are there are certain ways that we can practice. A lot of this letting go is not volitional, but uh, we can practice some of the classical approaches to training the perception of not self. So regarding things as not mine, not I, not myself, dropping the sense of self, if you have the ability to do that. Um, we talk about it in more detail in the course. But what I wanted to share, the reason I'm sharing these slides is so I can read quotes that come from people in the class. They're so wise, probably like wiser than me. These, these are things that people came up with. So here we are. At my stage of life, the review and clearing of material possessions can provide a rich form of life reflection as well as a practice of acknowledging impermanence. So this person spent time reading old journals and notes from classes and trainings that they had taken, a lot of them Dharma trainings. And she says it became clear that their true value had been in the doing, not the keeping or holding on. So she realized she had actually already been changed by what she did. Here's another one. Um, this was from a person who had gathered a bunch of books with the intention of giving them to grandchildren while her children were still in junior high. <laughs> so she already had the idea that sometime in the future, these kids are going to grow up, produce grandchildren for me, and I'll give these things to them. Uh, so this person says, but we instead share them with neighbors who have young kids and can use them right away. Giving these gifts felt so good. And then we have some insight coming where if we work in the material realm, it actually leads into the realm of mental patterns. So people noticed, for example, I buy things that are helpful or interesting, but are not really needed in the long run. Or I'm attached to the belief that things might be useful later, so I should save everything. Anybody recognize any of these in your own patterns? So what people find is that what's in their closet says something about how their mind works. Very useful to know that the outer and the inner uh, mirror each other like that. Okay, so then um, we go on to mental patterns. So on the realm of, remember I said people tried to give up complaining. One person thought that they didn't complain at all, um, but then they discovered to their horror that they are almost constantly complaining in some form or another about other drivers, my body's needs, or the views of the person I'm speaking with. Some were very subtle complaints, cleverly disguised as a statement of facts, so this person learned about their mental pattern uh, that they didn't think they had. This is someone talking about uh, becoming aware in the middle of complaining. 
And they say, I chose not to stop because it felt too good in the moment, but afterward it did not feel good at all. So they discovered the compulsive quality of complaining. And that's a sign of tanha. When we're grasping onto something, there will be a compulsive quality to it such that if we become mindful in the middle of it, we can't stop. So this is interesting to know about the mind. Okay, so then in the realm of um, looking at papancha, people develop the ability to have much more mindfulness of thoughts. Um, I could see the moment in which a thought arises and disappears. I started to realize the degree to which thoughts are conditioned. So this is actually a really important insight. Or I saw the mind getting lost in views about how things should be. So watching the mind fall into a view is a very interesting process. So then people start to realize, oh, okay, the material moved me into the realm of my mental habits. And actually, the mental patterns lead into the realm of identity. Colorful and interesting images formed where certain pieces of material, cultural, social, and upbringing related, were put into the kaleidoscope of my mind. This person realized I'm experiencing all of these within my own box. So I thought this was quite wise. This was just from the exercise of trying to watch the mind uh, for its mental patterns. Okay, so then we get to identity. Upon seeing or hearing something, I could see times when I would run straight into papancha and selfing, making these things all about me, just upon seeing or hearing. So one sense experience gets turned into a self that then has all this meaning associated with it. My takeaway is how unnecessary, but also how powerful and hardwired this habit is. Stepping away is like relaxing my fist into an open hand. So a lot of nice insight into how identity forms. This exercise happened to coincide with a time in a relationship when past grievances were being brought up, and I was able to see that I did not need to identify with the past image of me that was in this other person's mind. What a different world we'd have if everybody could do that. Dharma practice has thinned out the patterns that contributed to the behavior about which the person was aggrieved. So this person saw that they used to be a different person. And they probably they might not have seen that if they hadn't been advised to, um, to be looking in this realm, looking for instances of the identity forming. So... This is pretty deep stuff. Then people just are given an exercise of trying to let go of something. See what happens if you try to let go of this or you try to notice it. Um, people can have really interesting insights about how the mind works and how it's attached to things and how it's not obvious sometimes how to let go. But just seeing is that first step in the process of being able to do so. So... Um, we have to be careful, of course, if we've decided to take on this idea of being a lay renunciate or, you know, living in a somewhat semi-monastic way, that we don't take that on as an identity. <laughs> so that, too, can become an identity. Oh, I'm a person who does it this way. But I think it will be self-correcting if, uh, with the mindfulness and the discernment over time to not take on one more identity of oneself. Um, let's see. So... I think over the long term, if we do various renunciation practices, it leads toward less need to enact it as a as a practice. So this is kind of alluding to what I said before about things can be volitionally let go of, you know, we choose to clean out the closet, to moving into things where we can't actually make them let go, but we can see them again and again, create the conditions for the mind to understand where's the clinging, where's the dukkha there, and how can I release that? So um, eventually the mind learns to let go by itself in a natural and appropriate way. One thing I noticed in the suttas, and I'm going back to this, these ones that talk about nikama, when the mind is fully awakened, renunciation still remains as a naturally present value. And we can see this in the sutta where um, the monk Sona uh, declares his arahantship, it's a long sutta. We, many of us have heard the story about the musical instrument and being tuned correctly. Um, but later in that sutta, uh, he fully awakens and gives kind of a declaration to the Buddha about that. And he says in that, that even though he, he's now an arahant, he says his mind is intent upon six things, 
the first of which is renunciation. And he goes on to say, a monk with taints destroyed is intent upon renunciation because he is devoid of lust, devoid of hatred, and devoid of delusion. So in other words, the mind is intent upon renunciation when it has no greed, hatred, and delusion in it. So this remains as a value, even after awakening. So we don't have to worry that we're taking on some extra thing or some special thing that we're going to, that's going to, you know, artificial in some way. It's actually very natural that the awakened mind has the attitude of renunciation, continual letting go. So I guess the last thing I'll just talk about briefly, because I want to leave time for discussion, um, is that uh, in the very last part of the book, I talk about something called uh, the contemplative life. So, you know, what what does it look like if this is a very meaningful path for a person, if this idea of the attitude of renunciation, of living a life of letting go, of learning the different arenas of renunciation uh, feels meaningful to, to a person, and yet they're not ordained at this time. And so... Um, I suggest in the book that there are many different expressions that it could take, but one of them is one that I call a, a lay contemplative, which is um, someone who has knowledge of the early Buddhist teachings, you know, study and understanding the, the suttas is a key component of their practice. Um, and that there's a dedication to Dharma in all aspects of life, which tends to mean that one can't also pursue conventional goals like making a lot of money or gaining a lot of status or something like that. It's like the mind operates differently, even though it's living in the lay world, there's not an interest in those things. Um, so there tends to need to be an alternative manifestation of livelihood in a sense. Um, it's not only for wealthy people who don't need to think about that anymore in an active sense. There are other channels for earning income and finding ways to live. And there are people who are doing that uh, creatively um, as lay people. And then maybe some sense that a contemplative is supporting the development of the Dharma in the West by providing, uh, by, by exactly providing a model or a, you know, um, looking different than the conventional way in order that Western values get appropriately challenged or you know, shown that different values pointing in a different direction are viable besides our usual uh, capitalist ideas. So um, I guess I'd like to leave with the idea that um, there are maybe three practices or mind states or something that underpin a lay contemplative life. And one is renunciation. Another one is the general term care or that encompasses kindness and compassion and you know heart qualities connection. And the third is wisdom. Uh, those three together, renunciation, care, and wisdom, I, I chose because they, first of all, directly counter the three uh, root, the three unwholesome roots. So renunciation kind of counters greed, care, counters hatred, wisdom counters delusion. Um, but nonetheless, but despite that, the three, I think, are mutually reinforcing um, the more that we let go through a life of renunciation and simplicity, the more space we have for caring for others, caring for the world, um, and also the greater wisdom that we'll have about how to appropriately balance our lives so that they uh, can be uh, optimally supportive of walking the path in whatever circumstances we have. So the book fully unpacks, or at least does a pretty detailed job of unpacking the first one, renunciation, but I guess we now need books on care and wisdom to understand how those would be for um, deeply Dharma practitioners. Um, I saw something coming on the chat here. What are the five other things that, the, that people are intent on upon awakening? Oh, you're going to ask me that. Well, um, I'll send you to the sutta. It's AN655. I can't remember offhand. Um, they're all good, but the first one is renunciation. I also want to share one um, link with you in the chat, and that is that um, this fall I will be doing a 
another uh, course that includes some experiential uh, practices in renunciation, if you thought that looked interesting, but it will be based on the book. I didn't have the book before, of course, so it'll be a little different than it was before, but I'll send it to everybody here. Let's see. Hopefully you guys can see that. I think that went to everybody. Okay. So that's the, um, he has more information about the dates for the course. And if you want to sign up, it'll be um, a six-week course with four meetings over those six weeks, uh, all of them on Sundays. So I think I'll stop with some time left. And um, I would love to know your responses, your questions, um, anything that you want to know about the topic or if you read the book and have questions on it or anything else. Anne, your hand is up. Hi, Anne. So, um, Kim, thank you very much for this. Um, and, you know, my, uh, you spoke in the end of, for, I mean, I just appreciate the depth of your experience and look forward to reading the book. Um, I'm interested, I know you've thought about this, about simplicity, renunciation, and care of the world, and you allude to another book, but I'm imagining a talk that would be, um, you know, climate change, simplicity, um, and I just wonder how, to what extent you have taught that or would teach that. I think you've pointed to the most obvious um, application area for this kind of attitude in the world um, for a number of reasons. I mean, there's the obvious one of simplicity and using less. I mean, we just have to be using less here in the West. If you look at the amount of stuff that's used per person in terms of energy and goods and all of that, we are way out of proportion with our footprint in the world. And then more subtly, um, it is incredibly valuable to know that there are forms of happiness that are not uh, limited to the material world, right? Sensual happiness is always limited in a certain way. Like if I enjoy an apple at the very simplest level, you can't enjoy the same apple because there's the material world has this, you know, uh, quality like that. But if I enjoy the good feeling of being honest in the world or, you know, something like that, that is infinite in supply. You know, that doesn't get in the way of anybody else's happiness. It's a deeper form of happiness anyway. And, you know, if people were attuned to that, we would need so much less. So there's, but if people don't know that, then of course they're going to grasp on to sensual pleasures and happiness Don't take those, you know, humans are very driven toward happiness. And there's even a sutta where somebody um, comes to the Buddha and says, I get the idea that greed, hatred, and delusion are the problem. You know, I I understand that that's what we're working to release. But my mind still gets caught up in sensual pleasures. Why is that? Very honest. And the Buddha says, well, very straightforwardly, the Buddha says, it's because you don't know any other kind of pleasure. He says it's because you haven't cultivated jhana is what he goes on to teach him. But, um, you know, that, that doesn't that's not the only possibility, of course. But, you know, so the Buddha is very clear. If you don't know anything else, then, of course, you'll be attached to all these sensual pleasures. So I guess that's a long winded answer to your question. But I think it's a very obvious application and simple place to point. Yeah. Thank you very much. Okay, Wayne. Um, I can't hear you. Did you unmute? Now I have. <laughs> um, thank you. Uh, I just what hit me that uh, one of your the people that talked about their experience said, "quote Dharma practice has thinned out the habits that mm-hmm. happen," and that is something I'm slowly realizing and and makes me feel like okay this is practice is paying off it just the i still have the habits but they seem to be thinning out and a lot of it boy i can think of so many things to practice with the first one being food and eating and then also just with uh, uh in terms of renunciation practice but i i'd like to 
do that. And so I'll speak to, with friends. And <laughs> Well, thank you for bringing up that, highlighting that phrase. I thought that was a very wise phrase that they used also, because that's kind of what it feels like. You know, it starts out feeling thick and dense um, and entangled in certain ways. And then it's not that it's like, it's all that and then it's all gone suddenly. Is there's this gradual thinning out, this fading away, right? To be a raga. Um, and that's kind of how it works because it is such a tangled mass is that we only get a little piece at a time. And sometimes there's this falling away, but often it's more thinning out. Yeah, thank you. Um, Anthony. Hi, Kim. Thank you so much for your uh, your talk today. Um, yeah, my question is about um, renunciation. I'll be honest, uh, it scares the heck out of me, you know, just to be willing to commit to uh, such a, a big thing like that, you know. And uh, luckily, I have the Dharma, you know. When I got in the hole, I think mine is the first one, the addiction one. I think that's where I'm at. So um, I just can't see myself letting go, you know, and... Uh, so my question to you is, you mentioned those two other factors that, you know, the, the three, you mentioned uh, renunciation, you mentioned uh, the uh, Braham, how do you say it? The, bra, uh, the Brahmaviharas, okay. Yeah, the Brahmaviharas. Yeah. Um, and then there was a third one, which I forgot. Was that wisdom? Was wisdom, that, no? yeah. Wisdom. So my, my question to you is, is it, is it possible to like focus on the other two instead? Since the first, since renunciation is so scary to me, would it be possible to focus on the on the uh, loving kindness and the and the the, the praja, prajna, or am I just kidding myself? No, you're not kidding yourself. They're all good. They're and they all lead to the same place eventually. They'll they'll all bring the other ones in. Start where you can, and you're not alone. By the way, there's another teaching where the Buddha says that. Uh, for some people, the idea of renunciation feels like a precipice. It feels like a cliff. Um, and so that's, he knew that was a common feeling. This was written, you know, 2,600 years ago. He said that. So uh, I think doing these other practices, like the heart practices, they like create a, a staircase down the cliff. So it doesn't seem like a, like a drop off anymore. Thank you, Ken. Kate. Hi, Kim. I have a question on this from SN27.1. A mind imbued with renunciation is declared to be capable of directly knowing anything that can be realized. If you could explain that some more. I mean, I have some idea, but I want to hear your explanation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think the word nekama, renunciation, is sometimes used. Um, it's like any word. It has a range of meanings where it's used. So sometimes it refers just to, say, you know, walking away from the household life. And in this case, nekama is being used um, to uh, as, as kind of the attitude of renunciation. So the sense that if the mind is imbued with renunciation, it, it's capable of knowing anything that can be directly known. That would be where we have the renunciation paired in with the, the right view, the wisdom. And so it's, um, it's a sense in the mind of being willing to let go. And if we're willing to let go, then we would be capable of seeing anything that could be seen. It doesn't have to, doesn't mean immediately, but, um, I've certainly, I'm trying to feel into my mind. There have been times in meditation where um, the mind is um, sharp. It's pretty sharp and clear. And I have a sense that um, if I could just see a little bit farther, <laughs> something could release. Have you ever had this feeling? It's like, I can't quite see it. But and you can't do it, right? That's that's when you're at that point of it's going to be a non-volitional letting go. Something's going to have to just let go. But if the mind has in it the idea, I'm willing to let go, as opposed to I want to see farther or something with the yeah, I want in there. If it's more like, okay, what would I have to release for my mind to go farther? Then sometimes something can happen. So I'm going to call that the 
the deep form of the attitude of renunciation is what enables the mind to, to see things at that point in meditation. That'd be my first response. Probably if I thought about it more, I might have something different. But does that land at all? Does that uh, resonate for you? Um, yes, but I, I, my idea when I read this, because the, the sentence that, is, that came, come before this is desire and greed from the six senses. Uh, corrupt the mind and when a practitioner has given up mental corruption in these six, six senses their mind inclines to renunciation right mm-hmm. and then the, then the next sentence is the mind imbued with renunciation and so on mm-hmm. so Indirectly with this no. I, I understand renunciation as meaning disenchantment like disenchantment from the six senses Okay, yeah. So having the the willingness to mm-hmm. release the interest in uh, in any of the sense doors, I appreciate that there it includes the mind door, it includes all six senses. Sometimes renunciation is mostly related to the five. Um, right. Yeah, I think that's a fair interpretation. Well, that could work. <laughs> okay, that's all. Thank you. Great. All I wanted to say is thank you for the book. As a green type, this addresses where I'm stuck, and it's a great book, so thank you. Great. I'm delighted. Yes, it is uh, it is the, excuse me, the medicine for, for that type. And, um, yeah, thank you so much, Lee. Somebody sent me a chat that I might be able to unmute. I don't think I can unmute people. I think I can only mute them. Yeah. That makes sense. Okay. Well, then let's try Sumreen. And we're we're just about at time, but go ahead, Sumreen. Hi. Sorry. I, I didn't know how many hands were before me, so I, I just jumped in. Thank you so much for writing this book. Thank you for doing this book talk. Completely, uh, I don't know, has changed my life. And um, the last time I remember something like this happening was when I read, um, I learned about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path from uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. And so um, this is really, it's really great. I really appreciate your use of the um, addiction uh, uh, comparison. And um, I just wanted to ask you really quickly, you know, uh, I knew that there were uh, things like addiction to anger, um, you know, from past stuff that that, um, I did renounce, but it still shows up sometimes. And I guess I'm just asking um, when it still shows up in small, subtle ways to just be mindful of it and not, you know, like when I gave up alcohol, I gave up alcohol. And if the thought came up, I threw it against the wall. I mean, you know, <laughs> yeah, that, and, that um, has to be done with, with those strong. So is that, so is that, what these subtle things are also like, is it time or is it still like weaning myself off? Um, I mean, the, the tendency of the mind toward grasping or wanting or, you know, greed in its gross sense uh, doesn't go away until the third stage of awakening. <laughs> it doesn't go away completely. <laughs> so, you know, we of course it weakens over time, and we get better at seeing it. But this is a very deep movement of mind, and so um, you know, in its gross, very harmful form, like substance addiction, yeah, we just um, we have to be strong with that. But the the subtler forms just indicate that that root is still there in your mind, and it will be for a while. Um, so we just it is uh, seeing it does help a lot. Sometimes you can apply countermeasures. There's all the suttas are full of you know various strategies for this but in the end the the seeing of it clearly and the understanding of the dukkha that it's bringing in that moment is what will help the heart release it and by the way i the thing about addiction joseph goldstein um defines renunciation defines nekama as non-addiction which is a wonderful um reflection you know because you know are we addicted to anger are we addicted to dukkha are we addicted to 
you know, everything we can see as an addiction if the mind keeps going to it compulsively. So I love that you use that example in the book too. And everything, like when you said that, and when I'm saying it, it helped me go deeper, I can feel in my body the the sense now you know like um uh the sensation of it and i i i knew it in my head but i can actually feel the addiction you know the more the, the leaning up in and that is so powerful when you yeah. can feel that and then you yeah, just, because you of just you. be aware of that yeah thank you thank you I so see, much kim thank you i see christine has unmuted <laughs> i am i'm not sure what happened but anyway it's a good thing I I have a thank you for your talk and your book. I have a question about um, use of technology. I feel like with everything I do, like just getting a tough shed. Um, I designed it online and it took me two weeks to get it designed. And then getting it designed, I had to contact somebody and then that took me a while. It It's like this process that takes so long. And I'm like, maybe I just don't want to shed. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what to do, not to do due diligence in getting the best possible product or the best possible school for my grandchildren or if I'm asked for help or something like that. So I'm not sure how I can how I can get away from that. Yeah. Um, it's a, it's a big question and I know we're over time, but I, I think you've, you've zeroed in on technology being an area where we do have compulsion. Um, I mean, that's why we have ceremonies at the beginning of retreats where people give up their phones because it's like only with that, are they going to be able to, you know, release this device that's so dependent um, so I would point maybe it just to give a quick answer toward those lines that I read from the Metta Sutta mm-hmm. that talk about um, simplicity of body, speech, and mind. This is a case for simplicity of mind. So, you know, being able to discern how much time researching something is allowing my mind to still be discerning and not get agitated, for example. Because, um, of course, if you don't do your research and don't interact in certain ways online in our modern world, we can't function as well. And then you will have other stresses. So it's um, the simplicity is being able to um, do it just for the amount of time that doesn't lead to a lot of tension and compulsion in the mind, spreading it out over time, um, being discerning about how much we really need to do. And that's somewhat individual thing. Different people will have different capacities for that. But what's important to me and what you said is that you recognize that this is a, a challenging area and not just letting yourself automatically get wrapped up in it. Does that help a little bit? Yeah, I think I can set time limits and structure my time better. Yeah. around. And if it takes longer, it takes longer. Um, I think that's an area where I I try to rush, so it'd be better if I just can stretch things out a little. Yeah, the Dharma life doesn't always operate at the same pace as the conventional life, I've noticed. Thank you. Thank you. And then um, Varun, and maybe this will be the last, and I understand if people need to be dropping off. Go ahead, Varun. Hi, this is... Um, this is Akmaral, actually. I, I, oh. I don't know why my phone's showing up. Okay. This, but uh, <clears throat> uh, anyway, uh, I wanted to ask, I haven't yet read the book. Uh, it is a an important and big topic that, you know, I, I feel like I'm just at the beginning of it. And if someone is at the beginning where I recognize the need, but I don't really know where to start, um, what would you say is a good place to start is it to read the book to take the course to just start some observation of the places where you know i I, i'm not able to let go which are very very many um yeah if you would have any suggestions well what is it that prompted you to realize that renunciation or letting go or simplification is important for you just the amount of suffering that happens especially with mental um, you know, uh, clinging with clinging to identity, with clinging to 
how I view myself, especially, uh, yeah, which is identity, I suppose. Um, that's, I think, is the biggest, not so much the physical sense. Then I would start there, um, even though I, you know, talked about that as kind of the third area that gets led into um, really understanding, like, what is the dukkha there? Where is the complication mm-hmm. there? Uh, it's not really just about, I have this dukkha, now I need to let it go. Mm-hmm. Actually, dukkha is to be understood. And so doing some investigation into that, and in particularly the ways in which it feels entangled or sticky or complicated, uh, that's where the letting go comes in, is the, the part where it's um, it's more than we need. It's extra somehow. So really feeling that extraness and how it gets generated um, will start to lead you in, in a good direction. And then maybe as you're reading the book, some things will start to resonate and you'll have ideas for how to continue. I feel like um, the, the part that can, and this will be the last sort of question, or rather on top of this, like where I get caught is that I start, I, I'm trying to do it better, you know, well, I'm trying to, you know, let go, you know, I'll identify something and then mind clings to that. Oh, this needs to be let go. And then I'm working on letting go, which doesn't uh, seem yes. like, you know, the, yeah. the thing to do. I would like to have a, eliminate the word work on from yeah. um, sometimes from the Dharma practice because it just brings in sometimes more clinging. It's not, yeah, but it's, um, it's interesting to notice that in the language, right? We feel like, oh, I have this problem and now I need to work on it. Um, the interesting thing is in practice, sometimes you just sit down and follow your breath uh, every day for 20 minutes and three months later, you realize you're less angry at work. You didn't work on anger at all, but it something changed. So uh, this is a little bit deeper conversation, but you've started to observe how your mind is and where the dukkha is. That is going to provide. It's like the thing about this practice is it start anywhere, and you'll you'll lead. It'll lead into the whole thing. So um, that's a good thread to start with. Just keep looking at that. Thank you so much. Well, thank you, everyone. I see Rob has turned his video back on, so um, I think we're we're at time. But thank you so much for coming here. It's such a heartening thing to see people interested in this and um, this side of the Dharma. And I think it's really important for our society, not just us as individuals. All right. Thank you, everyone. And I see the chats that you sent. Thank you for those.